Okay, so a little while ago in San Francisco, I got to speak at the huge music festival outside Lands with the Ear Hustle crew. We talk about storytelling on stage. A bunch of amazing listeners come out, and it's all good. It's awesome, actually. But then, our part's over. And it's still fairly early in the day, so we wander. And security is tight, 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 tight. You're not allowed here or there, over there. But we realize we've got the Holy Grail. We're wearing artist past wristbands. So, tentatively, I wander up to the big-looking bouncer guy in front of the velvet rope area. Can I help you? So... I hold out my arm for his scanning machine, half expecting a beatdown, and his light turns green. This giant, he steps aside, waves us through backstage area access where they've got the good stuff. The brews on tap, the chef-prepared meal, the champagne on ice, baby. Then I see some smartly-dressed people on a platform, the cool kids. They're over there. I try to join them. But another security guard stops me. I hold up my arm again to his machine. The light goes green. He steps aside. I stroll over to the special platform like I'm supposed to be there. How you doing? And I start thinking. They've got the big names coming out on stage. Lil Wayne, Anderson Pac, Paul Simon. Paul Simon is in one of these trailers. And I'm thinking, if Paul gets to know me, We'd be great friends, he and I. Maybe we could jam together late night. Paul and me, me and Paul. So I head off to the trailer area. Two big bounces this time, no worries. I show them my all-access artist pass. They take out the machine. The light turns red. And so do their eyes. And as I'm backing up, I wonder, what if it worked? What if I had the special access, the golden ticket, the backstage pass? What if? What if? Well, today on Snap Judgment, we're not going to just get you inside the trailer. We're not just going to ride inside the limousine. No, friends, get ready, because today we're on a plane. We're on a plane. Throw your hands up. We're on a plane. The way the 1% of the 1% travels. Get ready, because we are four or five seconds from Wilder. My name is Glenn Washington. My diamonds have diamonds. When you're listening to Snap Judgment. you do with the chance of a lifetime if you got a golden ticket to spend a week with someone whom you admire whom you idolize someone with beauty and wealth and mystique and power on their private airplane what would you do now this story is about a rock star so listener discretion is advised snap judgment the way we all know that Rihanna's on the plane, because at this point it's like we're tittering, we're like in our assigned seat, and she gets on the PA 
and it's just Rihanna. Ladies and gentlemen, there is an emergency. Call 777! All of a sudden, Rihanna appears, and she's like, who's ready to party? Tequila, tequila. Everyone is up out of their seats, screaming her name. Rihanna's a boss! Yeah! She's giving shots and glasses of champagne to everyone. When she got to my seat, she just like poured generally in my area, not in a cup, just like all over my seats, all over me. It's just insane. Monday, November 12th, 2012. We're on a plane on a runway at LAX. Rihanna, and yeah, that is how you say her name. Hi, Vogue. It's Rihanna. Welcome to Paris. Is about to take off on a seven-day world tour. And she's bringing along 150 fans and 150 journalists. Everybody on this plane right now is the party. We all got our own diamond. It was the teeniest, tiniest little chip of a diamond. That's true. They all got little diamonds. And I remember distinctly Rihanna saying, now you can never say that no one's ever given you a diamond. First stop, Mexico City. People were like crying and like freaking out that she was there. There's neon lights and confetti cannons and the journalists write down her every move. The baddest has hit the stage. Rihanna whines and wiggles. She pats her thighs as if slapping cheese on them. The thing that I remember the most was when she did the song Stay. It was sort of just her stripped down and her voice was incredible. If you were like a child in bed and someone was just like, I'm gonna grant you a wish, and you're like, I wanna hang out with Rihanna, like this is like definitely top three things you would envision. Like you being whisked away on her world tour with her. It just felt like such a safe space and trust circle. And then, and then. It kind of pulled down the curtain a little bit and showed us that everything is a lie. <laughs> Julianne Escobedo Shepard covered the tour for Spin. I'll never have an experience like that again. Definitely no other musician will ever do that again. I had no idea what I was in for. Su Young Kim Abrams worked at Complex Magazine, where it was a known fact that she was the biggest Rihanna fan. So when Su Young found out her editor was prepping a cover story about Rihanna, she wanted to be the one to write it. But she was nervous. She never written a cover story before. I just had so much imposter syndrome, and I was a young girl working for a men's magazine, and I said, what will I say for him to trust me to give me the biggest story probably of the year. So I walk into his room and I said, hey, you know if you don't give me this Rihanna cover story, I might blow up the building. Her editor was convinced. And a few weeks later, she was on the tour. I didn't think I would get it. And I think that's why I asked. Because if I knew I would get it, I would have never asked because I would have been terrified to write this piece. What was your hope going into this? 
<laughs> it's embarrassing, but my hope was to be best friends with Rihanna. But she also had to deliver an article, a big one, a cover story. It was like, oh man, if I don't do a good job, I'm screwed. A seven show tour in seven countries in seven days. It was called the 777 tour. Rihanna's first stop is Mexico City, followed by Toronto, Stockholm, Paris, Berlin, London, and ending up in New York. 14,000 miles in the sky on a Boeing 777. 777 plane. All to promote unapologetic. Rihanna's seventh album in seven years. I'm trying to picture this airplane situation. Will you be like, hey, I'm going to go grab an orange juice and the fans will see you walk by? Or is this, how does this work? Definitely. We're all in the same plane together. The plane is divided into three sections. At the back, the fans. And that was like where you went to die. Jeff Rosenthal, Rolling Stone. That was like where like the madness was. It's 150 Rihanna fans. Like they're singing Rihanna songs constantly. In the middle, the journalists. I was really, really nervous and I was super excited. And I obviously went shopping because I didn't want to look like a scrub. There are magazine writers, TV show hosts, photographers, videographers, bloggers. And unlike the fans who are just here to party, they have a job to do. Music journalists don't ever get this type of access. You know, I think a lot of people look at our jobs and think that it's all like almost famous, like we can go on the bus with the stones or whatever. That just doesn't happen. You know, you would be lucky to get an hour with someone like this. Are you like sweats and slippers and like cream on your face and just, hey. Definitely, they'll see me in every realm. Rihanna is at the front, behind a curtain in first class with Def Jam executives, her band, her entourage. They all have their own private sleep pods and Wi-Fi, and Rihanna has brought along her personal masseuse. It's not even, oh, it's not even going to be glamorous. Like, trust me, I probably... Everybody's here for one thing. They want access to Rihanna. But after that walkthrough on day one, she pretty much stays behind the curtain, which is surprising for Sue Young. We thought we were going to have a chance to ask her questions, kind of like how after a basketball game, there's a press conference. Why are we doing this tour? How are you going to do it? What is your rest regimen? When did you rehearse this? Esteban Serrano worked for Fuse TV. I am super excited to see what's in store. How did the band come together? How are you putting together your set list? What are you doing in these countries when you're not on stage? We want to know all of these things. You have experienced a crew change. We will be with you for the duration of your tour. It's our pleasure. But as the plane leaves Mexico City, they still haven't had a chance to ask these questions. And the harsh reality of tour begins to set in. I didn't realize we'd be sleeping on the plane. Mary H.K. Choi, MTV Style blog. We were all super sleep deprived. We just wanted to be supine on any surface. The label did provide hotels, but not at every stop and never for very long. I think over seven days, I probably slept for like 10 hours total. Maud Deitch, also MTV Style blog. I doubt I slept in more than three hour bursts at any point. We're sitting sleeping with this like fear that if we fall asleep right after the actual show, that we were gonna miss the food. We were kind of subsisting on sad airplane sandwiches. Honestly, like, you know that really famous tweet of the sandwich at Firefest? Like, kind of similar situation. 
I don't have much weight to lose. I'm very tall, I'm very skinny. I lost two belt loops. The only thing that we could have overflowing amounts of was alcohol. Some of us actually remedied these feelings of like disorientation by just staying super drunk. I couldn't really drink like that because I was going to die. Julianne is sick with what will later turn into pneumonia. I puked so much and it was generally because I was coughing too much. The journalists get herded from plane to bus to venue. They barely see daylight. And as the tour progresses, their tweets become increasingly unhinged. I've completely lost all sense of time and living in a fugue state beyond jet lag. Please, God, make this end. I'm going to mace someone in the eyes with my face cleanser for a carrot spear. Hashtag prediction. Hashtag save us. Hashtag Rihanna Plain. By the time they make it through Toronto show, and Stockholm was and land in Paris, Next stop, Paris France. the hashtag Rihanna Plane is trending on Twitter. Paris was the tipping point. Even if you want to go to sleep, you can't go to sleep. You have to stay up. You have to see what is going to happen because nothing is happening and we have to get something. Def Jam, the record label, knew the press were antsy. So after Rihanna performed the exact same show for the fourth time in a row in Paris. Paris, what's up? We didn't know that every show was going to be exactly the same and that the only difference would be her outfits and the city that she mentioned when she shouted out the T-Mobile sponsorship. They decide to throw the press a bone by inviting them to party with Rihanna at a swanky Paris nightclub. It's going to be totally VIP. You're going to have all this access. She's going to be there. The journalists get there at midnight, and Rihanna doesn't show up until 3 a.m. But when she does, she arrives with an entourage of celebrities. Puff Daddy, Cassie, Omarion. Everyone kind of rushed Rihanna and Diddy and Omarion and Cassie, like, something's going to happen. We have this moment of access now. Maybe this is when we all get to hang out. And then suddenly these velvet ropes appeared, they started putting velvet ropes between the VIP and the rest of us. Sue Young can't see Rihanna behind the velvet rope and the wall of security guys. She can't take notes. She can't do any reporting. None of them can. How is she drinking from her cup, you know? Like, is she smoking a blunt inside? Just anything we could write about to paint a picture of her on this tour, we couldn't even get that. This is bad news for her cover story. I really thought I was going to come back from the tour and be fired. Her editor is sending her frustrated emails. I felt that I was letting people down. They gave me this huge opportunity to go on this tour and I wasn't giving them anything. But I also knew that I had no other options. Sue Young had managed to lock down an interview with Rihanna after the tour. So she didn't want to write about how badly it was going and risk losing that interview. The record company is very strict and... If you upset them, then your future access is gone. So I was in a very tricky situation where I felt like I needed to work, but I I couldn't. Other people's editors are threatening not to pay them. And several journalists actually leave the tour. It's not like we were there for giggles. We were there because we had jobs to do and we needed to go home and get our freelance paychecks so we could buy cat food. A few hours after their failed nightclub rendezvous, they go to the airport. But Rihanna doesn't show. Rihanna, legendary late. Crazy late. Rihanna's 
tardiness will probably be the most memorable thing from this tour. Def Jam reportedly racked up over $300,000 in fines from airports for not taking off on time. We were waiting on the tarmac for hours, hours and hours and hours. And someone checked Twitter and saw that Rihanna was not on the plane. She was shopping for lingerie on Champs-Élysées. There are photos of her from basically that moment shopping for underwear in Paris. That's when I think all of us got super salty. We're going mental at this point. People have turned on our lovely angel. What's the big deal? You're here because of her. She's not here because of you. Lama Amin, Rihanna's personal masseuse on the tour. What does it have to do with them? Because they had to wait for her? They didn't have to wait for her. And they were snotty like that. They were snotty like that. A lot of the press were snotty. Oh, we got to do this. We got to do this. And what, what are you? Huh? Lama is one of the best. She's worked with Beyonce, Jay-Z, Justin Bieber, so many more. And what is it about your fingers that makes them magic? I'm doing the audio girl so she could tell you, really, because I don't know how to explain it. But I'm very precise. Here, God. Yeah, <laughs> she said I'm God. Are you massaging my tape sinker right now? I did. What Lama can do with her hands is she can make celebrities fall dead asleep. And that's what she's doing on this tour. She's working on Rihanna's neck while she's in the car on the way to the show, working on her feet while she's in makeup. Also, the bad girl can catch a few Zs before she has to go on stage. I, I, I'll be honest with you. That girl was so exhausted. It takes a lot of energy to do interviews and talk to press, and there was a lot of them. If she did one, she'd have to talk to all. While Lama had her hands full with Rihanna and Sue Young and the others were starving for anything from Rihanna, there was one member of the press corps who seemed the least worried. We were all pretty sick of the Australian guy. Oh, God, that guy. He would play the harmonica incessantly. Everyone was about to murder him. Like... Literally, people were going to just go over there and, like, slice his hands off. Hey, you didn't like my harmonica? F*** you. We're here to party. That's Tim, the Australian guy. He was sitting a few rows behind Sue Young. Tim looks like your typical Australian surfer dude with long, curly, blonde hair. He's loud and wild. A lot of people were treating it like a serious sort of job, and it was for a lot of people. (laughs) That sounds funny, me saying a lot of people were treating it like a serious job. It just shows that I didn't. Tim DJed for Nova, a radio station in Sydney. He got offered the tour last minute. It was a bit of a lucky break moment where they gave me an opportunity, and then I I think they may have regretted it (laughs) come the long run. Tim had one job to do on this tour, just one. He had to get a shot of Rihanna holding a cardboard cutout of his radio station's logo. But you know what? Before we'd even taken off, like, the plane was still on the runway. More Australia? Yeah. I just jumped up, grabbed Rihanna and shoved the Nova logo in her hand and pointed the camera. Say hi to Nova. What up, Literally before we'd taken off, I had sent that back to my boss and he just texted back and said, oh, my God, your work here is done. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. I once again welcome aboard. Flight time to Berlin will be approximately one hour and 15 minutes. 
After Paris, the next stop is Berlin. To kill time because we got there to the venue actually early. We went on this bizarre tour where they were showing us like the chips that she would be eating. They pointed at like a tray of chips and they were like, oh, like these are for Rihanna. And it's like, oh, great. Sure. Like people were taking pictures. Showtime comes and goes. German people are not f***ing around and they were really turning on her and like yelling as she was like becoming later and later and later. The vibe in Berlin was scary. The show was very, very delayed and the venue was very, very hot and people were very, very mad. Three hours later, Rihanna takes the stage. Then Sue Young and the rest of the journalists are swept back onto the bus and taken to the plane. You could feel the tension in the airplane. Like people were not feeling good and they were ready to they were ready to leave. It is not over, Snappers. After this short break. The Rihanna plane is ready for liftoff. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Snap Judgment. When last we left, Rihanna's seven-day world tour just checked off Berlin, and things are heating up. You could feel the tension in the airplane. Like, people were not feeling good, and they were ready to, they were ready to leave. But the plane doesn't take off. And they just started handing out alcohol, like giving people these giant cups of cognac. And people just keep getting drunk. Turned up and drunk and rowdy. You can feel that sort of coalescing energy. And so we're kind of shouting at each other at this point. Finally, liftoff. No one would sit down. People were kind of just running around and bugging out. And the flight attendants were yelling at people. There's a camera crew roving around the plane filming all this which the journalists do not like. Wait, this was never the deal. I'm supposed to be the one reporting on this. Nobody's supposed to be reporting on me. And one guy starts making fun of them. He makes a joke about, like, how much B-roll can you get? There's nothing going on here. And that turns into a chant. And the chant is just B-roll, B-roll, B-roll. One of the other journalists goes, just one quote, just one quote. It had descended into chaos. It was a little scary. We're all like, save our jobs, save our jobs. Or like, I need a headline. (laughs) I'm like Norma Ray out here. (laughs) Free the Rihanna 150, occupy Rihanna plane. Where have you been all this flight? Are you hiding from us? Rihanna, come and say hello to us. All the pressure, all the frustration just came to a head and turned into a riot. It is absolute 
pandemonium in this place. There was just a cry for help from Rihanna, like, save our jobs. But Rihanna stays behind the curtain. We did hear some rumor that there was, like, some panic room on the plane. A uh, panic room? Where would a panic room be on the plane? Like, the front bathroom or what? Again, Lama Amin, her masseuse. We all looked at each other with that look like, what the hell? You know, that jump kind of look. Security got on edge. Rihanna was getting updates. Like, she wanted to know. She was like, what are they doing? I think she peaked, but no, she did not go back there. That was not a good idea for her to go back there. No, she shouldn't go back there. That's not cool. Fans and press, they can be dangerous. I'm sorry to say that, but it's true. Paparazzi and fans trample you, run you over. When they act up like that, it could sound like a threat. I remember Steve Bartles, the president of Def Jam at the time, walking out and just going, what the f-? Like, they, they could not have been more shell-shocked. It was shocking. And then, like, out of the corner of your eye, rushing past you in a wind. This, like, naked white dude goes whizzing past in my peripheral vision. But naked like Pegasus through the clouds. All of a sudden, I just see butt. I just see, like, butt cheeks running right past me. And I see long, blonde hair flowing, and I knew exactly who it was. Yeah, it was a bit of a blur. I remember some people pulled out their cameras, their video cameras and and phones straight away. At the back of the plane, I did kind of leap over one guy and I remember him sort of squealing, and he was a grown man. <laughs> Everything became so good after that guy ran around naked. Finally, finally something happened. Tim was the knife that cut the tension. Definitely broke the tension, and we started laughing hysterically. I was laughing so hard that I puked like a bunch of lung mucus into a plain blanket in front of me. And then it kind of turned into a party where they weren't mad anymore, I guess. Whoever streaked, we should thank him, because he made it light. He really did. Everybody got out their laptops and went to work. Soon, videos of Tim running naked would rocket across the internet. Someone said, you don't realize what you've just done. You've just given a plane full of hungry press a story. As Rihanna hops the globe for her 777 tour, things got rowdy on board a jet filled with journalists and her fans. One of them streaked down the aisle, there he goes, butt naked. Everyone wanted to be the one to break that story. Scrotes on a plane. Is it the story everyone wanted? Hell no. But for Sue Young, it was a story she couldn't tell without risking her interview. I was like, ugh, I I don't know if I can write about that. I think I thought, oh, great, this is going to go back to my boss. (laughs) I'm going to be in trouble. When Tim got off the plane in London, one of the suits from Def Jam was waiting for him. And they pulled me aside and said, look, we actually don't know what to do with you. Like, what you've done is, is illegal. They said if this was a commercial plane, you'd be arrested. We're going to watch how this story unfolds, but to be honest, it is one of the first positive stories to come out of the plane. Like, you've actually made this tour look fun. And then, when they're descending into New York, Rihanna decides to address the press. It's the first time they've seen her in coach since LAX. Thank you, everybody, for making this trip. Honestly. 
For someone who just released an album titled Unapologetic, she is kind of apologetic. She was like, I'm really sorry that I wasn't able to party with you guys. And all these people from the back of the plane, from the middle of the plane, everywhere, ran to where Rihanna was. Cameras out, just commotion. That might have been honestly the most insane because I was just like, I understand why she wouldn't want to hang out with us. Like, people just lost their Are you glad you did 777? Absolutely. Yeah. I'm glad. And I'm glad I did it like this. We landed. At MTV, we had black cars that would be waiting for you at the airport. Very old school journalism. And I got into my town car and was just like, it's over. I'm alone. That was the biggest thing, was being alone for the first time in six days. When we landed in New York, someone came up to me and said, you're coming with me for the day, and we're doing press all day. I want to bring in VH1's Janelle Snowden and Australian DJ Tim Dormer. Oh, my God. They got me to strip down and, like, interviewed me about this tour on American television. <laughs> Have you seen where they blurred me out? They weren't very uh, generous. I remember meeting Anderson Cooper in the hallways. I'm not even joking. We're in the CNN building and Anderson Cooper goes to me, you are the news today. <laughs> the weight of the experience stuck with me for a while. Not on some, like, PTSD, but kind of. Tell me about your Rihanna plane dreams. Oh, man. I legit had Rihanna plane dreams where Rihanna never got on the plane. And we just sat there for days, like water's running low, like ate all the peanuts. People are like sick. I don't know if anybody's told you this, but Def Jam, after this whole thing, the idea was to do an 888 tour where they would get a boat in Miami. And I would have done it again. I would have gone on the 888 tour. I came back with more of an obsession with Rihanna which I wasn't expecting at all. Like, I thought I would have enough self-possession and dignity to hate her afterwards, but that was false. We always talked about Stockholm Syndrome, but it really is like that. Like, I admire her as my captor for what she did to me. It just made me embarrassed for the human condition. The human condition of standing. You know, the human condition of believing that someone is better than you just because they happen to be extremely talented. <laughs> Sue Young did finally get her interview with Rihanna a few weeks after the tour. Man, it was really crazy just sitting at a small dinner table at a very intimate restaurant next to her. I still can't believe that happened to me. The interview was short, and she did not ask about the 777 tour. Her story came out, and then a year later, she was at a fashion show in New York. When I walk in, there's a swarm of paparazzi surrounding someone. When I look closely, I realize that it's Rihanna and her friend, Melissa. So I took a deep breath and I walked into the crowd of paparazzi, cut through them, went up to Rihanna and her friend and said, hey, how's it going? And she looked at me and noticed that I changed my hair and said, oh my gosh, you dyed your hair blonde. It looks so good. And I said, thank you so much. I almost peed my pants. And then I went back to my seat. And then everybody after the show obviously was looking at me because they were looking at Rihanna and they said, wow, we didn't know you and Rihanna were best friends. And I was like, well, you know, we have a history. We went on tour together. 
Since the 777 tour, Rihanna has released one album and is working on another. She's the first black woman in charge of a major luxury fashion house with her bad self. According to Forbes, she is also the world's richest female musician worth $600 million. Why are they up in her business? And she has nine Grammys. She did not respond to our request for an interview yet. You know, my success, it, it, it started as my dream. But now my success is not, it's not my own, you know. It's my family's, it's my fans, it's my country's, it's the Caribbean as a whole, it's women, it's black women, it, 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 so many people. Respect. Special thanks to Kristen Gwynn, Lawrence Bull, and Elizabeth Nakano. The original score for this story was by Renzo Gorio. It was produced by John Casillo. WNYC Studios and Snap Judgment's Orbiting Hall of Justice. Welcome back to Snap Judgment, the We're on a Plane episode. And you might think that you've had reason for alarm in your own past, but they're our next story. A longtime friend of the show, Ray Christian. And aside from being a storytelling legend, Ray's an army man. Snap Judgment. In 1984, I was a 22-year-old young sergeant assigned to an airborne infantry battalion. We were paratroopers. I was stationed at Fort Bragg. We'd conduct night combat equipment jumps that would involve thousands of paratroopers at once. The training was dangerous, and it wasn't unusual for us to have guys severely injured or even killed during these training operations. We had young soldiers in the company that were Grenada vets, and our senior NCOs, a lot of them were Vietnam vets. Our young soldiers who were just chomping at the bit to get a chance at combat. Guys start doing drugs, guys start drinking, guys have problems with their wives, their girlfriends. Morale in the company was starting to drop. And this added up to so much stress, we had a few guys go AWOL. Me and Sergeant Ronnie were assigned to inventory the soldier's locker and equipment who had went AWOL. It was uniforms, civilian clothing, radio cloth. And in the corner, there's this little folded bindle of aluminum foil. Unfolded, and I saw inside were two small stamps with stars on them. Whoa, acid? Nah. So I took one of the stamps out and I said, hey, Ronnie, put one of these in your mouth. He looked at me and he said, what is this, acid? I I figured it was acid, but I wasn't gonna really take one. I was just fooling around with him, you know, put it in your mouth, just kidding with him. He looked at it for a second and said, why not? And put it in his mouth and I laughed. Now, Sergeant Ronnie was the kind of guy that was very hyper-military. He was 
kind of strict. He had a high-pitched voice, pretty by-the-book kind of guy. He looked at me and said, so what are you going to do? He must know something I don't know. He wouldn't, he wouldn't take acid. I just knew when he put it in his mouth, it had to be fake. Then he looked at me and said, what are you going to do? Say, hey, okay, same as you. I put one in my mouth. We take the inventory sheet, we turn it in to supply. We start heading out. And as we were walking across the parking lot, the battalion sergeant major yelled out, hey, you two guys, what are you doing? Where are you going? Said, oh my God, sergeant major. We said, we're heading out, sergeant major, heading home. He said, oh no, you're not. Get your gear, you're going on the jump. because we had the additional duty of inventorying this guy's equipment, we believed that we weren't gonna be involved in the jump. But, but Sergeant Major, I think, he, uh-uh, he cut me off. We need to get these shoots filled. Let's go, let's move out. <sighs> so I'm starting to think about all the things that go wrong. What if I get decapitated by a suspension line? What if I get towed behind the aircraft? What if I hit some equipment on the ground? I was starting to immediately feel fear and apprehension. If we would have said something like even slightly hesitant about, about being on a jump, it would have seemed suspicious. We call people who are not on jump status legs, and that's a dirty word. I would rather have died than turned down being on a jump. I wasn't gonna be a leg, I was gonna jump. I looked at Ron and I said, man, how you feel? He said, man, I don't feel nothing, but this is bad anyway. When we were on the trucks headed to the, the pack shed, this is at the Air Force Base, I started having this feeling right then and there that everybody on the truck was staring at me. And I knew, oh, it's, it's starting to kick in now. We all pour inside the rigger shed, all 500 of us, and one at a time we're issued parachutes as we enter inside. Once you've got your parachute on and you got all your equipment hooked up, you stand in line for the jump master's inspection. Open your ripcord protected flap, hold, squat hold, recover, turn, bend, arch your back, tick, tap, 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 tick, tap, tap, turn, turn, squat, hold, I actually started saying that out loud, you know, squat, hold, squat, I was just saying it because I thought I, I should. And then I started thinking, wait a minute, if I do that, people will think I'm high. But if I act like I'm not high, they'll think I'm high. Slowly, all the guys in line started getting their parachutes inspected and we take a seat. I wanted to sit down, but I kept standing up. I kept walking around, and that was unusual. I started to think about how many thousands of paratroopers have been in this building preparing for a jump, and I was inspired to just yell out for everyone to hear, how many paratroopers have been in this place? I started thinking about there were ghosts, maybe, still impregnated in the memories of the building and in the walls. And I yelled that question out, too. Are there any ghosts in the walls? When I was startled by two, well, what looked to be two World War II-era paratroopers coming out of the walls, I couldn't help but walk closer to it, but 
On closer inspection, it was just a pattern of old paint scuffs on the wall. That's when I started to notice that other people were starting to stare at me, staring at them. A few even laughed at me. And that's where I saw Ronnie. He was already rigged, sitting on the floor, crying, tears coming down his cheeks. To me, it was like a river of water. I asked Ronnie how he was doing. Ronnie looked at me, and he just started to cry. And people noticed. I went to him, and I said in a soft, loud voice, Man, get yourself together. You are an American paratrooper. Do you know what our brothers have done before you? Act like a damn man. Get Get it together. together. And I started singing. And I'm not a singer. And I'm singing these corny airborne songs that they they force on us. Gory, gory, what a hell of a way to die. Gory, gory, what a hell of a way to die. Gory, gory, what a hell of a way to die. And he ain't gonna jump no more. And uh, I remember somebody yelling out, oh, that's pretty damn appropriate, Sergeant Christian. It's really appropriate. Ronnie stared. I reached out and I wiped his eye. A little tear was coming from it, and I helped him up. And then he assisted me in rigging my chute. Once everybody's inspected, we stand up and we all march out toward the back of the airplane. The only thing you can see inside a C-130 at night like that is this the red jump light above the uh, jump door and down the floor, and there's this hum of the plane. Mm-hmm. Uh, usually the guys sleep, but I didn't. I was just focused on the light. I mean, it was beautiful. And the Air Force pilot turns on the green light, go. Door opened up and the wind rushed in. Normally you really feel the impact of the prop blast hitting you and you twist into the night sky, but I don't know, I had the sensation that I just jumped into a big old marshmallow cloud and I just floated out. The stars were starting to twinkle. The moon smiled at me. The parachutes billowing across the drop zone. They looked like ghosts. They were just floating and dancing. And and, uh, I could hear everything, every sound. Threw my arms out, looked up like Jesus. Started contemplating the nature of the universe. Oh, it was just beautiful. It's probably the best jump I ever had. I loved it. I loved it. Seemed like it took me forever to reach the ground. I landed in a sandy pile amongst the pine trees and thickets. The guy landed close to me and he hit the ground like a sack of potatoes and he gave out an And I just yelled out across the whole drop zone, this is beautiful. And it just echoed. And I know everybody heard that, but I couldn't help myself. It was beautiful like those other parachutes that were billowing across the drop zone. It looked like a woman in a dress. (laughs) 
through the darkness, I heard this sound, and I, I recognized it as the sound of vomiting. And instead of going to the assembly area, I followed that sound, and that led me to Sergeant Ronnie. And there he was, sitting on the ground, vomiting, and he was crying softly. And I was thinking to myself, he must be having a bad trip. And that's when I decided I wanted to sing to him. We're all Americans and proud to be guardians of honor and liberty. Some flying gliders to the enemy. Some come down as paratroopers. The next morning when I woke up, the company commander who I always try to avoid because of his manner, when he saw me, he said to me, you know you need to go see the battalion commander. He wants to talk to you about your behavior pre-jump and on the drop zone. So the battalion commander doesn't speak to me. People in my rank don't usually get a chance to talk to him. And I go into the battalion commander's office. All the senior officers in the battalion were present. That kind of a group usually means something bad. You're getting some kind of a ugly reprimand, and I was scared as hell. And he said, never have I seen such an unselfish act as a man motivating his fellow paratroopers, sticking with a scared, nervous man during every phase of the operation, even on the drop zone. Sergeant Christian, you are the personification of an American paratrooper. Keep up the good work. Airborne. I said, thank you, sir. Airborne. I can remember shaking my head as I was walking away from his office going, damn, I, I was completely dumbfounded. I, I, what just happened? It was like the blade didn't cut my head, but it fell. In the mornings when all the units are doing physical training and they run up and down Ardennes Street, they're the loudspeakers where they play nothing but non-stop military martial music. And these old airborne songs are the ones that you hear. And when they would come across the speakers, we would all start singing them really loud to Sergeant Ronnie. And you know, much to his chagrin. Sergeant Ronnie, you were scared on the drop zone, man. Sergeant Ronnie, what's up? You lost your nerve. You was having problems, Sergeant Ronnie. And <laughs> he'd be running with his butt cheeks really tight. He was too stiff and too anal to respond. Up to that point, everything, all of our encounters were always serious. We really didn't have anything to joke about. There was nothing funny. I had my boys back again. They were back in their spirit. Big thanks to Ray Christian, who is a storyteller living in Boone, North Carolina. Now do yourself a favor. Subscribe to his podcast, What's Ray Say? It'll be available on our website or wherever you get your podcast, snapjudgment.org. Do that. The original score and sound design was by Leon Onimocho. That story was produced by Adiza Egan.
about that time. And if you missed even a moment of Snap Storytelling Magic, you know what to do. Get the Snap Judgment Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And know this, it is risen. An all-new season of Snap Judgment presents Spook, presented in partnership with Luminary Media. Subscribe to all the things that are going on. I'd love to tell you what I really think. Hit me on the Twitter, the Instagram. We'll be new best friends. Snap Judgment is brought to you by the team that claps every single time the plane lands. Throw some peanuts at the Uber producer, Mr. Mark Ristich. Captain Cindy Miller, Anna Sussman, Renzo Gorio, Shayna Sheely, Liz Mack, Eliza Smith, Leon Morimoto, Lauren Newsom, Marissa Dodds, Flo Wiley, Nancy Lopez, John Facile, Nika Singh, Teo Decott. And even though this is not the news, no way is this the news. In fact, you could sit next to the big star in first class on your next trip, pitch your script, have him say yes, only to realize that, hey, hey, this is not first class. That guy doesn't even look like Matthew McConaughey, though he did promise to be right back with your luggage. And you would still, still not be as far away from the news as this is. But this is WNYC. Thank mm-hmm. you.